good people. You are listening to episode 11 of Feel Free to Deviate, the podcast about people, their careers, and their relationships with success. My name is Jim Turbert, and I'm the host. The guest on this episode is Melissa Woods, who runs Trude Apparel, which is a sustainably sourced fashion company that caters to goths. Well, not exclusively goths, but people who like to wear comfortable women's clothing that is predominantly available in black. Melissa was a student at Wellesley College when I worked there, and I think she's the first millennial guest on the show. Like many other guests on Feel Free to Deviate, she has an art background, but she offers a fresh perspective as someone who is in an earlier stage in her career. We talk about graduating from college during the Great Recession, her day jobs, and how she views true apparel as both a business and an artistic endeavor. We also talk about guitars, horror movies, subcultures, and music. So I hope you dig that stuff as well. I think that this episode fits nicely with both episode 9 featuring Naomi and episode 7 with Robin. Naomi and Melissa are working on similar stuff, but they seem to have completely different approaches. Naomi has been at it longer than Melissa. She's at a different stage, but I think it would be interesting to get back to Melissa in 10 years or so to see if her perspective and approach has changed. Robin from episode 7 has a similar approach to self-improvement. Both she and Melissa actively seek out courses and classes to learn skills and develop their networks. It's important to see both similarities and differences in how people get to where they are. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another, and I sincerely believe that in most cases, there are many paths to the same destination. I sound so wise. I wonder if you automatically get wisdom when your beard turns gray. Anyway, it's nice to cross-reference episodes to recognize patterns, similarities, and differences. You know, it's one of the reasons I do this. On a personal note, I'm starting to feel a little bit stressed about my situation. I've been unemployed for 10 months, and now it's the end of the year, and time feels very compressed. It's sort of like a pressure cooker, and I do not like it. I'm going to write some unsolicited letters later this week, which is something that I don't normally do, but I've been told that I should. Everybody has advice, and I'm sure that they're trying to be helpful, but it always feels sort of judgy, or maybe that's just me. Regardless of what it is, I need a win. This is the fourth quarter, and this is not the time to stop. Speaking of not stopping, let's move forward. This is my conversation with Melissa Woods. Melissa Woods. Yes. You are the first Wellesley student that I've had on the show, and maybe the first millennial. You're a millennial, right? Yeah, and I'm not even really an elder millennial. I'm like an upper quadrant millennial. I asked you to be here because you seem like a successful person to me. You have or had a cool museum job in a cool museum, and you started your own very niche clothing company, (laughs) which is pretty cool. It's a bold move. I don't know very much about you because we haven't talked for years, and we weren't even really, I mean, I wouldn't say we were friends back when I knew you. We we were friendly. (laughs) I liked you though. Yeah. Yeah, I liked you too. And and I always thought you were pretty cool. And but when I was preparing for this, I kind of realized how little I know about you. And because you're in, I don't know, our, I'm gonna guess that our age difference is somewhere around 10 years. You are in a phase of life that's different from the one that I'm in. And I'm guessing the one that most of the people who listen to this are in, and certainly in a different phase from the people who have been guests so far. So mm-hmm. you get to be the spokesperson for millennials. You get to be a new perspective on Feel Free to Deviate. (laughs) And yeah, I'm just, I'm interested to hear a little bit about your thoughts and feelings about success, your thoughts and feelings about your own career, your thoughts and feelings about the careers of people around you, stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. There's so much to dig into. Well, first of all, you may or may not know this, but I graduated from Wellesley in 2008, right at the market crash. That led to a long and winding path. And I think that's the general theme of this podcast is long and winding paths, right? It is. Yes. And especially in the arts, you find that a lot, regardless of what, how the economy is doing. So that's like a double whammy right there. I'm just going to start by asking right off the bat, do you, do you think of yourself as successful or do you even think in those terms? I don't necessarily think in those terms. I feel like I'm on firm ground for the first time in my life as of the last few years. And if that is success, then that's cool. 
<laughs> I suppose it's up to you um, whether it's success or not. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy in my personal life and my work life. And, you know, I got to say in terms of traditional success, in terms of having a certain level of income and having family and being more established like that, there are a lot of people that are further ahead of me that are my age that I graduated with. That were smart enough to double major in economics or something <laughs> on top of an art major. In that sense, I guess I feel personally successful in that I was able to find my way to a place where I feel pretty good now. I also know that, you know, people that have taken more established paths sometimes don't feel happy with it. And you think that they are ahead of you where, I don't know, in the sense that it checks more boxes. But then when you actually get to talking, you're like, oh. They kind of wish that they had taken a gap year or tried out some other stuff before they settled into what they're doing now, you know? I do. So first off, I should say that I did have a museum job and I just switched to a job in ed tech. So I'm no longer in the arts. Although okay. I had a really good run and I, I enjoyed it. I was doing marketing PR communications at the PBD Essex Museum in Salem. Really great team of folks there. I have an MBA though, and I was looking to flex it a little bit more mm -hmm. and I needed um, to be at a bigger place to do that. So I'm now at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It's an ed tech company based in Boston. They have been really involved in digital education solutions in the pandemic because that's been the hot topic mm -hmm. the last couple of years. Of course. Um, that, that's a whole journey unto itself, the day job part of it. But on the side, I also... I was already working on this before the pandemic just because I wanted to have a creative practice. And, you know, back at Wellesley, I was doing a lot of fine art, drawing, painting, printmaking. And I had sort of fallen off the wagon on that just because it takes a lot of mental focus. And if you have a nine to five, even if it's in the arts, it's tough to switch to that in the evening. But I found that with my kind of business grad school background and my creative background that this is something I could do depending on what mood I'm in. So basically I would work my full day and then I'd kind of switch over to my personal laptop and do all these true to peril things. It could be anything from designing a new piece of clothing to looking at my financial spreadsheets to just email communication, setting up stuff to driving over to my pattern and sample makers to check up on how things are going, you know, to doing a, like a garment fitting there's a lot of variety to it that went beyond having a personal creative practice. I also kind of felt like I'd found my medium, not in the sense necessarily that fashion is my medium, but that business is my medium. Ah, You know? Yeah, that's kind of cool. You know, before I was doing personal art projects and it's just you and the thing. But when you create a business, it's this entity that keeps unfolding and it keeps drawing other people in and they always add something of themselves to it like I really like to see how people style what I put out into the world like they kind of take it and run with it in the fine arts world you could compare that to like a participatory art project you know where people leave something of themselves there or it, you know accumulates through some sort of crowdsourcing method or something like mm -hmm. that so you know maybe if I'd stuck to the fine art track maybe that would have been the way that I'd do it but it's also nice to make money too. It's so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so I kind of got the best of both worlds there, I yeah. think. All right. I'm going to I'm just going to mention this. You obviously know because you went there and some people who have listened may be aware of what Wellesley is, but to get into Wellesley is really hard. And it's a really demanding school and it's a very competitive school both to get into and but also once you're actually in there. I don't want to generalize too much. I'm going to say it takes a specific type of person to actually get in and, and succeed there. So I'm kind of wondering where you come from that made you think Wellesley's the place for me. And who did you have to kill to get in there? It's funny because Wellesley is something that I've definitely grown into over time. I went there thinking, hey, it's a good school. I really like the people I met there when I did that overnight. You know, <laughs> my dad and I went down the East Coast. I'm going to apply early decision. And I got in and I didn't apply anywhere else. Wow. That kind of ended <laughs> <laughs> That's very impressive. The whole being a women's college thing didn't necessarily factor into it in the sense that like I didn't 
actively want to be only around women being educated in that environment, I just figured, oh, it's close to Boston. I can have enough of like a general mainstream social life if I go to Boston. Yeah. And I ended up actually doing that a lot. I hung out in Cambridge and Boston a lot. But as time has gone on and Hillary was up for the presidency and we've seen what happened after that with all the misogyny that came out Trump, and I'm not going to get too political on here, but the, the more that I've lived as an adult, the more I've realized how necessary having that network is. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, like you can argue one way or another about whether single ed education is necessary or what the pros and cons of that are. But it definitely has put me in touch with a lot of really intelligent, progressively minded, critically minded people that are wanting to push the world in the right direction. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. I completely understand that. And I remember when 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 I first started working there, I thought it was kind of weird and old fashioned that there was a place like that. And over time, I sort of grew into the idea that it was a good opportunity for people. But now looking back on it, because I have a wife who has worked in lots of different places, just the stories she tells me about the work environment, I can definitely see a value in in having a network that is as strong as the one that you can build at Wellesley. And I can't yeah, imagine terms, what it's like to be a woman yeah. in the workplace. And I never will. I mean, look at me. I'm the whitest, oldest, middle-aged guy. And I'm from Connecticut. I am white male privilege. Anyway, Wellesley seems like a pretty good place. Yeah. I was getting more involved with Wellesley alum Facebook groups because there's actually a really great set of groups for any kind of advice you would need from work stuff to personal stuff, the whole variety of things in between. Just people giving each other really realistic advice that's like grounded in the lived experience of being a woman. Yeah, that's pretty great. And you were there till 2008, which is actually when I left. I left in September of 2008 you were actually in the last complete class that I, I was involved with, which is kind of cool. When did you get the museum job? Well, I got the museum job in, I want to say, 2016. Oh, okay. That's much later. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was there for five years. That's not nothing. But first of all, I should say in 2008, I went straight into, um, I think I worked for a while. And then I went to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts for a post-baccalaureate program. And I had a great time there. It um, really kicked my personal practice up a notch, actually. And I was really happy with the work I did there. But I just couldn't push from my mind the fact that the economy was in the tank and I just could not get further into student debt. That just was not going to work out well for me. Yeah, I've always been a pragmatist. So that ended up leading me to abandoning the MFA track because the idea was to build up a portfolio at the certificate program and then go on to apply to MFA programs. So I didn't do that, ended up in, um, entering the workforce, worked for a really great publishing company based in the UK that works with contemporary illustrators to create hardcover slipcase, really fine edition books. But because of the Eurozone crisis, after working with them for three years, they closed our entire office, not just me, you know, including my boss who had been working with them for 28 years. It was like bad. So first job out of college, layoffs. Then I basically worked odd jobs. I sometimes worked four part-time jobs at a time. Worked in a bakery in the morning, the Brattle Theater at night. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Great people there. Well, both of them are good, actually. Um, I like baked goods. Yeah, the part from that was you got to take home all the day-olds, however much you wanted. You Sounds know? good. And then I was doing art tutoring and a couple other things. Yeah, did that for a while just because I like literally couldn't get a job. But that's what you're supposed to do. And I think that <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that as someone who went to fancy college. You focused in art, but still you went to fancy college. And one of the reasons people go to fancy college is because it opens all these these other doors. So I think it's kind of cool mm -hmm. to hear that you did the normal thing. Like everyone works. I used to work in an ice cream shop. I used to dig ditches. I used to like I was a handyman. I did all kinds of weird stuff during and post school. Uh, yeah, I waited tables, I, whatever. I did all those things. And those are really fun jobs. You meet, you meet a lot of fun people and you find yourself in new and interesting situations. I, I think that it's an important part of human development. I totally agree. I mean, you know, I wish it paid better, but... <laughs> Everyone does. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it 
brings you into the world in new and unexpected ways. And, you know, I did wait tables too for a while, mainly at the Middle East and Zuzu. So, you know, like I've nice. had some pretty cool. Those are, cool, those are really cool, crappy yeah. jobs. Yeah, I know. <laughs> as far as the jobs go. Uh, just, just so everybody knows, the Middle East has all the cool rock shows in Boston. And does Zuzu as well? I, I feel like Zuzu was starting when when I was when I was leaving. Zuzu has more like dance parties and DJ okay, things, right? But the show spaces are in the Middle East, upstairs and downstairs. And now they have Sonia's, which is uh, you might not know about. I Sonia's know. is named after the the sister of the the family, the Seder brothers. Um, uh, so the Seder sister, her name is Sonia, and they named a new club after her that took over TT the Bears. Right. Yeah, that was the other big one when I was there. So if you work in the Middle East, you can go to shows for free, which is nice. Which is great. So <laughs> did you know Jason Babbitt? No. He may have left by that point. He worked at the Middle East for eons and he was, yeah, he also worked at the Video Underground in Jamaica Plain. Mm-hmm. Imagine this, a video store. It was crazy. You went in there, you rented videos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Best video um, store I ever. I, I really missed that actually, like going and picking out something. It was great. I liked walking in there and that they knew who I was and they're like, Hey, we got this thing in or, you know, you know, like they kind of knew what I liked. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) And they would recommend stuff or I would just sit there and talk (sighs) the golden days. But speaking of the golden days, that's, I kind of feel like, like even talking about the post-college years, but also the first time you get a job that actually pays you, whether you think it's a good salary now or not, the, when you got your first paycheck, you were probably like, damn, this is amazing. This is money. This is real Mm -hmm. money. And then you buy something. Yeah. You get accustomed to having money, which may or may not be a good thing, depending on how you look at it. But thinking about where you are in your career now, I feel like you've been living with that like actual job, jobby job money stuff for a little while. You've grown into it, but you're not to the point where you you have kids and, and all kinds of other stuff. You're like in this sweet zone. It has been pretty sweet to spend the pandemic this way. I got to tell you, we don't even have a pet. Nice. We've talked about getting a goldfish and we haven't pulled the trigger on that. <laughs> don't get the goldfish. It's fine. <laughs> Unless you really like the way they look. Right. We have to get someone to feed it when we go on vacation. <laughs> and, you know. Right. It's been so different for different people, right? Depending on what your home life is like. For sure. But you decided to go to business grad school just for practical reasons. Mm-hmm. What does one do in business grad school? Math? Well, um, you do do more math than I would like, but I knew that going in. I was taking accounting at like eight in the morning. That was the low point for me. But it really accelerates your ability to be a professional, which is cool. It makes you more organized. It makes you better at collaborating with people. And I actually really liked reading business case studies because like is a relative term. <laughs> they made me do it. And then I learned stuff like cool stuff. Just, <laughs> so. like, you know, nobody can see my face right now, but I'm doing this. Still can't see it. I, I, I don't understand how that could be interesting, but I'm glad that you find it interesting. Well, it's because these case studies are picked because they describe a certain dynamic that plays out in different ways across business time. So basically you learn a lesson from this one thing and then it becomes a shorthand where you can see it happening in a different instance in the real world. In your real job, you can say, hey, it's just like that thing. I bet I can apply that same solution here. It's like a law student with precedence. Yeah, yeah. All right, I appreciate that. Yeah, let's see. I went back to grad school after the layoff that I previously mentioned where it was my first job job out of college Mm -hmm. and it just, planted. I did, I think it was a couple years of that part-time job stuff and then decided that I wanted to go back to grad school and get a really practical degree. It was very out of character for me considering my resume up to that point because I was basically like a quote-unquote art person and I was one of maybe two people there that kind of cared about arts in like a primary way. Okay, I'm going to be generous and say like five people. All right. That's very big of you. (laughs) I was there to just learn how to be a professional and learn really practical skills about how to, because I had a marketing background at that point, how to do that better. So I ended up doing that and then also concentrating in the public and nonprofit concentration that they offer. Uh, I went to BU for this, by the way. Yeah, that's actually served me really well. I actually like to say it gave me the the guts 
to start my own company, to not be afraid of all the steps I need to take and just do it. It really gives you a sense of how to break down a problem into smaller bite-sized chunks and just go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soft problem-solving skills, quote-unquote. The unknown stuff is more known then. At least you have a foundation for it, so you're not terrified of spreadsheets or taxes so, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, after, after you throw the, you know, the art student into the deep end of accounting, there's nothing you can't do, <laughs> right? I guess I should take a, an accounting course. I think it could help me. We have a really good accountant, though. Yeah, I know. It's, it's nice that I know some stuff, but I'd still rather hire somebody to do it Hell instead. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I currently do, actually. So I, I have accounting help for True to Peril which is nice. All right. So you, you got the, you got the degree before you started, before you started working at the museum and then they hired you. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What kind of stuff did you do at the museum? I did PR marketing communications, that whole spectrum of stuff dealing with the press to dealing with social media and the website to our blog, to emails and things like that. The whole communication spectrum. Is it fun? It was. Sounds like a pretty sweet job to me. Yeah, there is an exhibition on the Salem witch trials happening right now. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that PEM hadn't done that. PEM being the Peabody Essex Museum had not done that for 30 years because they didn't quite want to participate in the whole schlocky Halloween thing. You know, I get it. But I had personally always felt that PEM could be the highbrow version of that, like the really authentic, really educating people instead of just entertaining version of that. And it's really great to see that they're doing it. It's really cool to see that in the museum I used to work in because that's really where my personal interest leans. I guess ever since the Middle East days, ever since the Brattle days, you know, gone further and further down this dark and winding gothy path. And now I'm here. I was going to mention that I don't remember you being particularly gothy. And now you're running a goth clothing line. How does that happen? How, how how do you become a goth? My my understanding of goth culture is very limited because I was I'm not a goth guy. I mean, being someone who has always been a part of some sort of music scene, you encounter goth identifying people <laughs> along the way, but that was never really my particular genre. Like if you ask me what do goths listen to, the first thing that pops into my head is Bella Lugosi's Dead, which is pretty vintage. Yeah, I actually have Bauhaus on the turntable. Excellent. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you get into it? Well, I was always into music. Yeah. In high school, that's a big way that I found my identity. I actually come from an international family, so I didn't live in the States until I was 10. Oh, wow. I used to live in Singapore. I used to have an accent and everything that I lost over time. So now I speak like this. Yes, you do. I couldn't go back to it if I wanted to. I was trying to find my way through culture shock and, you know, the whole coming into your own and adolescence thing. And like music really spoke to me as a way to do that. So in high school, I was one of my arts and entertainment editors of the paper. I would review albums and things like that. And then when I came to Wellesley, I was at WZLY as a DJ. Yeah. Shout out WZLY. There, I wasn't goth, quote unquote, but I was playing a lot of post-punk. I got really into post-punk in in high school and kept going deeper and deeper into it. And um, for those that don't know, goth is kind of an offshoot of post-punk. Bands like Suzy and the Banshees, Bauhaus, Love and Rockets, things like that. I knew that I liked post-punk and I liked things that had this sort of darker ambiance to them. In general, not just in music, but in movies and different kinds of media. Yeah, That was something that I gravitated towards. I always thought of goths as, well, if you don't want to, you know, put bats and coffins up in your house, then you're out of luck. I guess you don't fit in here. (laughs) But what really opened it up for me, actually, was finding industrial music. Once I knew that I really liked post-punk and really liked industrial, then it kind of all started coming together where I was like, dang, most of this is me it does describe me and i still don't call myself goth like i i wouldn't say that i tend to call myself goth adjacent okay but like i'm at the i'm at the clubs i'm at the shows i'm at all the things <laughs> so it's one of those label things like i don't know you could call me that i guess but people can't see me right now i'm not wearing black <laughs> almost black but not quite did you frequent man ray when you were in boston or was man ray closed by the time you were there yeah it was so close i think it closed 
the year I came out to Wellesley. So uh, I wouldn't even have been of age to go there to a 21 right. and overnight. Yeah, they had to, I've been, I went there a couple of times, but can't, I can't recall when it closed, 2004-ish. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if you heard, but it's coming back. Oh, nice. That's nice. No, I didn't hear. I, I know very little about that sort of thing in Boston these days. It was like a pen, pandemic fundraising project, basically, where they got it together enough to open it sometime later this year, I've been hearing. Like it pushed back a little bit. It wasn't just goth. It was, they had all kinds of stuff there. They had, well, you talked about industrial and all that. So they had industrial, all these goth adjacent things. I like that term, goth adjacent. They also had like gay nights and stuff like that. So so I think maybe at the time that was a little bit more progressive that there was Mm -hmm. another venue for that. For, For all I know now, it's a completely different scene there. It was good to have another venue with a different viewpoint. So what music are you listening to? When I got up this morning, I put on Drab Majesty. Okay. A lot of these genre names are kind of ambiguous, but dark synth pop, synth wave, dark minimal synth wave, maybe. All right. Boy Harsher is one of my favorite. They live out in Northampton. You should definitely check them out. I'm going to. I'm going to check out every single band that you mentioned because I have no idea who either of those people or bands are. Well, you know, they are both current bands. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I, I haven't been going to shows at all the last couple of years because I figured, you know, a bunch of people packed into a relatively small room breathing heavy is probably not a great idea for COVID times. But I'm going to maybe go to a thing tonight, a techno, I guess you would call it, thing, Black Asteroid. I don't know if techno is your thing, but you can check that out. From what I understand, techno is a very broad genre. And one of my friends is actually a pretty famous techno DJ because a lot of techno DJs are Dutch. One of these guys that Marlene went to school with is is a super famous techno DJ. And I know that he's famous and I know that he makes techno. But if I heard his music, I wouldn't even know if it was him. I, don't, I just don't listen to it. But I'll check it out because that's what I do. I check things out. <laughs> I have a feeling you'll connect more with the first two than the third one. But who knows? I have a feeling too, but we'll see. What about films? This is Halloween season. Do you have like a regimen of scary or spooky or macabre movies? Ooh, yeah. Anything that A24 puts out. Yeah. They're the folks that did Midsummer and Mm -hmm. um, Hereditary Mm -hmm. and The Green Knight that just came out. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, they basically can do no wrong. And I recently saw, I mean, not that this is spooky, scary stuff, but Titan was ridiculous. It's on my list. Okay. <laughs> so just to give you an idea, I went to the, the Coolidge Corner Theater. And right before the thing started playing, one of the staff popped his head in and was like, enjoy the ride, guys. And then closed the door. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Like very body horror, but in like a Gaspar Noy way you know? Yeah, that's awesome. That's a that's a very good description. I appreciate it. All right, what else you got for me? It's not just for me, by the way. It's for your kids. <laughs> I want, you know, I want them to be cultured. <laughs> okay, let's see. I have been, I don't know, into like giallo stuff too, like Mario Bava, anything Dario Argento. That's great. I watched Phantasm for the first time yesterday nice. and I kind of did. I wasn't sure what to make of it because it's like monstery in cemeteries, but then it's also like, I don't want to give spoilers, but it's also something else. And then there are like flying things. And it's it's just like a mashup of different types of things that you don't normally see in the same movie, if that makes sense. Honestly, I haven't seen that movie since I was probably 12 years old. I just remember very specific graphic elements about it. For all I know, it's the worst movie ever made. <laughs> I um, I mean, I know it spawned a whole franchise. And at the end of it, I was kind of like, why? <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this really necessary? Yeah, do we need more of this? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. But that's how it goes with those things, with, with horror especially. Yeah. I mean, I know that tons of people stand that movie, so... I get it. It probably was pretty iconic when it came out. So you kind of got to put yourself in the headspace of like when it came out, right? Definitely. I remember it being one of the movies that 12-year-old boys talked about. Because there are boobs in it. I don't remember the boobs, but that would definitely have been a selling <laughs> point. <laughs> if you saw it on TV, maybe the boobs got cut out. I'm not sure. I probably, I probably <laughs> did not see it on TV. It was probably from Age of Video in Winstead, Connecticut. Sorry to put you on the spot with movies. I just, um, my wife doesn't really like horror. I'm always... 
on the lookout for cool horror movies in case I have to watch something by myself. Not that I'm a, a horror nut or anything, but I always appreciated it when I was an adolescent and I, I still do, especially because there's so many good, clever ones. I remember a couple of years ago, a friend, a friend of mine from high school who was a, a horror guy, his band was playing in Amsterdam and I went to hang out with him and, and he gave me a couple of lists. This was years after this movie came out, but The Cabin in the Woods, I, I had no idea what that was. And he told me about it and I watched it. I freaked out. I was I was so into it. It was the coolest like meta horror thing. It referenced everything that I loved from my childhood. And yeah, I really liked it. I also really liked the editing. I'm always like five or six years late to whatever the cool horror movie is. But you just mentioned uh, Midsommar and, and, and Hereditary. And I, and I really, I really dug those. And did you see that Nick Cage movie with called Mandy? Mandy. Oh my yeah, God. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> that movie's insane. Oh, so cool. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, yeah. Insane is just the right word for it. Literally insane. Bonkers. Crazy nuts. <laughs> I remember I kind of sneakily took out my phone and took a video of that one scene where he's like freaking out in the bathroom and like drinking vodka in his underwear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a good memento. That's so good. And then I watched that. What's that guy's name? The director? What's his name? Do you know off the top of your head? It's like a really long consonant heavy name that I've never really internalized. Yeah. Anyway, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But I watched, I think it was his first movie. What is it called? Beyond the Black Rainbow. Did you oh, see? yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I, that's been on my list for a while. Don't watch it if... No, I'm not going to say don't watch it. Definitely watch it. But it doesn't really make much sense. It is stylistically beautiful and totally worth watching. You just have to let go of... You just have to accept what it is. Don't expect resolution. Just go in there and, like the guy from The Brattle or the Coolidge Corner said, enjoy the ride because it's just sensory bombardment is basically what it is i kind of got the impression that it was like the end of 2001 but like an entire movie <laughs> kind of i mean there are things you start to put things together and then you're like no there's no context for so many things but it's still worth watching it is the guy makes beautiful films it's really really good tell me about true to peril <laughs> <laughs> okay i make mostly black clothes with an edgy look one might say that it's a goth clothing line, but really, I look to brands like Helmet Lang for a lot of stuff. It's like minimalist, angular, also like practical and wearable, quasi-active wear even. I also make sure it's 98% eco-friendly. I use tensile and organic cotton for almost all the fabric. Mm -hmm. There's a tiny bit of spandex in there just so it can be a stretch knit, but that's the only like concession I make really. Mm -hmm. So it's between that and uh, dead stock fabrics, which is leftover fabrics from larger companies. Okay. So like end of bolt stuff. You know, I had a business background and a artsy background, but no fashion background at all. I ended up taking a six month online course that just sort of teaches you all about the fashion industry called Factory 45. I just Googled them and found them. And that put me in touch with a network of a cohort of 100 people from all around the world, mostly women that were starting their own eco fashion lines. And I learned a lot from that because you have to learn about production lines. Like you have to learn about sourcing material and who's going to make what and how many people you have to involve and how you price things out. And, and then there's a the whole marketing side for like, got to have a website, you got to have social media. So there are all these components and bit by bit, I chipped away at it. And now here we are. I've done a few weekend markets so far. People seem happy with it. It's chugging along and it's really given me that creative outlet that I needed. And it's just the right kind of pace. Like I mentioned earlier, I really feel like I found my medium. How long have you been doing it? Just since Corona? I was doing all the prep work, like learning about the industry up to a couple of years ago. Well, at this point, more closer to three years ago, but we officially launched 10 months ago. Okay. So we, we've been like out in the world for only 10 months, but there was the whole making all the thing that happened before it launched. Yeah. Three years, you say? Mm -hmm. I think that's an important note because I think that there are people out there who decide that they want to make clothes and they don't do any planning or any preparation or have any idea about anything, really. I understand because I started a podcast. I don't know how to make a podcast. I mean, now I do. But there's still things that I need to do. I guess strictly calling it goth, 
you, you like you say you don't identify as goth, but I, I was I was thinking about different levels of goth. You know, maybe when you're in high school, you know the kid that identifies as goth, and maybe he looks a little goofy because there's a whole level of access to the culture. One, like, is your level of access to the culture Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Anyway, it's kind of like a fake it till you make it thing. You have your idea of what goth is, and then you sort of find your way to your level or goth style and over time. And then there are people who take it to the like cosplay levels of goth where they're steampunk monocle wearing people who carry around skulls and stuff. And then you've got your professional people in work who wear a lot of black and have heavy eye makeup. Everyone finds their way to express their preferred level of gothness. And I think it's kind of cool that that you present people with an easy way to express your gothness or your desire to wear black. And it's also uh, environmentally sustainable <laughs> and comfortable and, and whatnot. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, I went through my whole journey of coming to this which came with imposter syndrome too. It's yeah. like, am I goth enough? You know, <laughs> um, how do I want to participate in this in a way that's authentic to me? Yeah. And I think as long as you can be honest with yourself about like, yeah, this I do like this and I'm really sincere about being here, you know, you can find your own way to do it. And that's totally allowed. I used to think that I would have to push myself to be more of something in order to fit in in this world. But there are just so many different ways to express yourself within this scene. And no one's given me a hard time about it. But at the same time, I think that it's important to come in with some amount of respect for the culture that came ahead of you, because this, we're now like a couple generations into goth culture. Mm -hmm. There is such thing as paying, paying dues. You know, of course. I don't want to gatekeep or anything. And I'm I'm very happy that people didn't gatekeep the hell out of me. So there's there's all those things at play. But I think like if you become it in a respectful way and like really just try to be friends with people. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it definitely you refine your own style over time. Because when I was in high school, that was the height of new metal. Thank God you missed it. Oh man. But, <laughs> so you bad. know, like we basically had hot topic. Right. And that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's goofy, right? It's yeah, I mean, like, you have to start somewhere. But at the same time, my relationship with it was I actually had someone come up to me at school and be like, hey, there's a store at the mall I think you would really like. And I was like, oh, is that so? So I went and checked it out. And I mainly would go there to buy, like, little spikes and things. Yep. Um, Manic panic. <laughs> yeah, and non-natural hair dye is not allowed at my school. So I didn't get to use a whole lot of that unless to tint my hair. I couldn't bleach it and then dye it. It was just, like, the tint. Blue black. You could do blue black though, right? Yeah, or like burgundy. Okay, you know? right. <laughs> like red. <laughs> red is natural. I remember actually going there to read comics more than anything. I would just like park myself in the comic section and then like read a whole bunch of comics and not pay for anything. Well, you know. But you know, and then like a band tee here and there. But I definitely wasn't someone that stood out aesthetically a whole lot. First of all, I'm kind of a low-key person. Like, I don't really like to be looked at, which is ironic because I'm in, I have a fashion business. But, you know, having, having this has actually pushed me to present in that way more myself day to day than I normally would. Because, right. like, you know, I, I throw on a wool cardigan just like everybody else, mm -hmm. generally speaking. But being connected with more fashion people, especially in this space, as I get more and more into this business has kind of inspired me to get more elaborate with looks and things like that. But like generally the last couple of years because of the pandemic, I haven't been going out to clubs and stuff and that's what you would reserve your like real looks for. So this is just day-to-day -day practical stuff. So you don't have goth pajamas, like silk with a cape or something? I actually really, really wanted to have silk pajamas, but it turns out it's just not warm enough for me. I'm one of those people that gets cold really easily. I like the idea. Somewhere between like the TLC No Scrubs video. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and goth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> good that's stuff. So how, but how's it going? Are you feeling good about it? Yeah, it's going really well, especially as something I launched during the pandemic, only as an e-commerce business. Yeah. Um, I literally have only been in front of people selling this stuff three times in real life. Okay. Everything else has been through social media and the website. Right. Do you do all the social media yourself? I do it myself. Um, I'm dabbling with a little help on the back end right now. Yeah, it's me doing 90% of everything. I like it that way. The, you're working for 
Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Yeah. They're an old timey publisher. Oh, I know. All my school books were made by them. Yeah. So yeah, that's my day job, um, which I'm actually very happy with so far. I'm only a few months in now because I just switched over in the end of the summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As far as day jobs go, it's like the people are super nice. The work is meaningful. I can't complain. You don't feel burned out or fried from doing both, making both, trying to build the other thing. Trude. What's really helped is not having social life these last couple of years. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I used to go out a lot. People would joke with me about it's midnight where you got to get to now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like on a Wednesday. (laughs) I don't have that problem. Well, I mean, you have kids. I do, but I didn't have that problem before either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, so I had all these things pulling me in different directions before everything got shut down. And so then it just kind of turned into an incubator, you know? Mm -hmm. So you still do your day job and I'm very fortunate that for both my job before and now, they had really good work-life balance. So you really can work nine to five and not feel awful afterwards for the most part. I mean, like there are busy days, but then you have dinner and you go work on treat stuff. Right. Because, you know, why not? Yeah. Because like, what else are you doing? Right. Yeah. No, you could watch TV, I guess. You could watch Beyond the Black Rainbow or you could just, you know, build your business. Um, Actually, when we were making plans for sitting down and talking about this. I realized that a couple years before I launched Trude, I deliberately sat down with a friend. We like went out to dinner, Mission Hill, just like a catch up dinner. And I like deliberately told her about my plan to start this business. After that, I decided I would tell as many people as possible okay. that I was planning to do this. So that would hold me accountable and I wouldn't just be like, oh, that's a stupid idea. What was I thinking? You know, and then just give up because I'm very much that kind of person where I kind of like nag myself out of things. I understand. I do the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a very human thing. But kind of building some structures into it all that will like make you feel ashamed to back down helps. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which friends you're talking about, but I I was thinking during this whole thing that you kind of seem like a mix of a stereotypical Wellesley person and something completely different in that the stereotypical Wellesley student is super organized and and focused and goal oriented. And you've got all that because you're doing the thing you like, you break it down and you talk about all these different aspects of business and spreadsheets and the taxes and how you truly enjoy tackling each one of them and, and parsing them out. But then you also talk about normal life. And I say that because when I was there, one of the things that having a strictly normal art school background, I didn't really deal with people who would have arguments about who slept the le- the least during exams or during whatever. Or one of the students who worked in the photo cage as a student worker for me was disgusted by my taking inventory on a yellow legal pad. And I came back one day and she had put everything in an Excel spreadsheet for me because she just couldn't handle well, first of all, paper, but also <laughs> the messiness and the uncertainty of, of uh, the legal pad. So like, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the stereotypical Wellesley thing. Also, you know, you went on to business school and stuff. It's because like, that's a solution to a problem. And that just seems like something that a Wellesley person would do. But then you're also involved with cool culture or whatever. And not everybody from Wellesley is involved with cool stuff. No offense, Wellesley people. I'm just saying, (laughs) cool is relative, but from my perspective, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Is that is that crazy? Is that way off base? Yeah, no, no, no. I think that's totally correct. I would say that the subset of Wellesley that I fell into, which is a combination of ZLY, WZLY, and the hoop, because I was a hoopie too. Yeah. Oh, right. Um. Those tend to be the folks that are more plugged into queer culture, like pro-LGBT stuff, just like alt culture in general, which has a big overlap with where I am now. Right. Yeah, just between the arts and between all of that, we could enumerate the different stereotypical Wellesley students. And I know the one that you were referring to previously, but there are a few other offshoots of that that I feel like I was hanging out with more. Mm -hmm which might make the narrative make a little more sense. But also everyone that gets into Wellesley is pretty much like an A student, very organized, very on top of it. Yeah, I mean, like you need a certain GPA to get in there. Yeah, of course. (laughs) They don't let the dummies in. Uh, That's not fair of me to say. I've been saying that a lot. And every time I hear myself say it, I kind of cringe a little bit. I don't mean dummies. Anyway, I'm sorry. I apologize. Nobody's dumb. Well, some people are, but that's not what I meant. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) 
No, you're totally fine. Um, yeah, I mean, like we we both know what we're talking about here. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing too, because I think being at Wellesley and then after that being at business school caused me to be more of this kind of person than I was. Okay. Like if we went back in time to before that. Sure. You know, so it like just sort of enhances certain things in you. I think the subculture thing is a little bit counterintuitive because people tend to grow out of that, whereas I grew into it. Huh. I grew up in Honolulu, so I don't know. It's a bit of a small town vibe over there. There aren't a lot of touring bands because you have to like literally fly over the ocean to tour there. <laughs> I either wasn't aware of cool stuff happening at the time because I was too young and too not plugged in with right people, or there just was a limited amount of stuff to be into Sure, because you're literally on an island. But it wasn't until I came out here that I started really kind of digging into stuff. And I'm really thankful for everything that like being at the Brattle, being at the Middle East, being at Wellesley in different ways has opened me up to. And it's sort of spiraled out of control. And now here we are. <laughs> yeah, I totally relate to that. Like I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut and mm-hmm. it's a similar thing. Someone's older brother knew about punk rock bands. So like right. that's how we heard right. about punk rock bands. And then eventually, you know, like when I was 13 or 14, maybe someone would give us a ride and we'd go to an all ages show. Or maybe there was this one store in Danbury where we would drive to go get records or t-shirts or whatever. And it was a real effort of discovery because there was really nothing like that where I was from. You kind of had to either make it or go find it. But, you know, you were talking about being accepted by the goth people. I never really felt accepted by like the scene people in these other places because they were from New Britain or from uh, Hartford or from from cities and they were cool. They already had cool clothes and all the cool stuff. And I was this rag pie from from Winstead. I like music. <laughs> I, I felt like a total outsider. So, but it, but I think as you get older, you just don't care about that. Like for me, instead of becoming a part of a scene, I sort of started to not care about not being a part of a scene. You kind of find a scene, you, you find your own scene, I guess. But I never identified with punk rockers or ska kids or hardcore kids or goths or whatever. I just knew some kids who were one or all of the above. I feel like as a art kid, you can tend to straddle those things more. Like I've seen more of that in art crowds than any other crowd, if that makes sense. There's more acceptance, perhaps. Yeah, we're, we're like, you know, they'll kind of airdrop into a goth night or airdrop into a metal show and just be like, yeah, you, you belong both places. It's fine. <laughs> I think especially when you're trying to find your way as a kid, I think a lot of times you get overly hung up on what click do I belong to instead of just being like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I I think that's something that you grow into more as you get older. So the more comfortable I got with that, the more comfortable I got with being part of this. Yeah. That makes sense. Right on. Just a side note. I don't remember who the reporter is and it was many years ago, but there's a This American Life where they talk about goth culture and the reporter finds two like grand dame old time goth ladies and they mentor her through the process of talking about goth culture in this this episode of this american life they talk about going pink does that mean anything to you no but if she was talking to more what would be called trad goths goths of a certain generation that like have a particular aesthetic yeah um there might be a certain lexicon around that that is not really like the folks that i hang out with too much all right i'm just gonna say it because it's awesome okay they 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 told her when she was like picking a goth name so like i'm guessing this is kind of an old school goth thing they're like you need to pick a goth name think of like the you know the 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 scariest name you can think of and the reporter said becky and they were just like they were amazed at her decision they said oh my god she's gone pink which is evidently like yeah something else i don't know but it was years ago that i heard this but that that moment sticks out to me very much because i don't know it just sounds awesome I'm going to have to Google that. If you just Google goth this American life, I'm sure you'll find it. I can't remember which reporter it is. My notes are a mess. Look at my notes. They're all over the place. Every which way. Yeah, for real. Got that. Oh, that's legal pad. <laughs> nice. Organized. Little baby needle legal pad. That's very unwellsley. <laughs> I find it impressive that you're doing the things that you do. I think it's cool. Is this a good way to wrap it up? I don't know. It's tough to be pissy. I'm going to say thank you for coming on. Do you have anything that you'd like to share? Before you go? I guess generally speaking, in the theme of this podcast, the more comfortable you are just doing, like following your gut, 
and doing what makes you happy, the better. And you're probably not going to take that advice on its face just based on this podcast if you're younger and listening to this. But it's true. And you will actually learn that through living your life. And when you get there, it's pretty cool. I'm trying to think of something else I should probably ask you. As soon as we stop, I'm going to freak out and say, oh, I should have I should have done the thing. And then you can always hit record again or, I, you know, we could always meet up again. That's totally cool. Yeah, I have a mic now. You do. So, yeah. You're mic'd up. Well, I hope you're <laughs> going to use that mic for something else. You didn't just buy it for this. Yeah, um, I actually have sort of like an informal band, whatever. And I also have a friend who does um, electronic music production, who I'm probably going to hit up for classes also because I don't have enough hobbies. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that um, one of the most interesting things about people who do a lot of stuff is what are their hobbies? What do they do on the side? I'm actually really interested in that because I haven't had a job for nine months, for 10 months now, and I'm still so busy doing just stuff, like trying to do this, putting this together, of course, applying for jobs, doing just normal home stuff. I thought that I was going to be able to do so much more. I have no idea how people find the time to do any of the things that they do. And you're in a band, you've got a company, you've got a full-time job. You're talking about getting a fish. <laughs> it's a big commitment. <laughs> it really is a big commitment. So how's the band? It's good. We were jokingly talking about what music are we even playing right now the other day. And I think that we're dark post-rock. Dark post-rock. <laughs> Once we add a vocalist, that'll take the sound in a different direction depending like because we've talked about i would love to have a female vocalist personally because i think that would be cool but it could be death metal rasping mm -hmm. or it could be like kind of shoegazy washed out hazy vocals either of those paths would work and it would change the overall sound too i think yeah so yeah we'll see what happens you know the band helmet i do <laughs> kind of that sort of vibes like hard rock but like a little maybe a little bit mathy at times like melvin-y melvin kind of stuff oh man yeah helmet i used to be so into them in high school yeah i saw them at toad's place in new haven maybe i was at just out of high school i can't remember what year it was i'm gonna say it was 94 95 and man those guys were good what's that guy's name the guitar player the main guy you probably don't know anyway i used to know but was that album Betty? That was the second, their second record, I think. <laughs> anyway, it was good. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, do you know Slint? I do. Yeah. Okay. So I started talking about Slint when we, like my bandmates and I had this conversation. I was like, sometimes we kind of sound like Slint. And both of them didn't know what I was talking about. So I sent it to them later. Yeah. Um, sort of that range of that would be on the lower energy end. All right. Was Sp Spiderland is their big record, right? Yeah. So, but where do you find the time? Like you got all this stuff going on. Where, where, like, when do you practice? How, like, do you just meet up for 30 minutes and practice? It's a couple hours at a time, but only once a week. So Thursdays are blocked out and then the rest of the time. Do people cancel a lot? Sometimes. I honestly wonder how the polyphonic spree ever gets together. Because <laughs> there are like 50 people in that band. <laughs> yeah, it's another level of commitment. But, you know, what other bands have a ton of members, but... Um, the Arcade Fire. I was just about to say that. I was like, <laughs> it starts with an A. What the hell were they? If you have a horn section, then you automatically double. <laughs> and do you play out? But I think the the vocalist has to come first. Right now, we're just getting the backing instrumentals of a lot of songs together down pat. And then we're going to bring someone in. Yeah, maybe you don't need a vocalist. Maybe you do. I don't know. That's your band. You do whatever you want. I don't know either. I feel like it could help it all gel but we'll see. Vocalists aren't all they're cracked up to be. Some of them are egomaniacs. Part of the reason that I like my bassist and my drummer so much is because they're not the kind of person who wants to be a front person. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So then, but that becomes a problem when you need someone to stand in the front and yeah. everyone's like too shy. So are you playing guitar? Mm-hmm. Nice. I didn't know you played guitar. I don't know why I would. What kind of guitar do you have? I have um, a Gibson Special 2. I've never seen this model before, but I picked it up at the Guitar Center downtown. It was just on the wall. It has a kill switch on it. So the tone knob, when you press it down, it kills the volume. So you can go like... That's pretty cool. Kind of like Rage Against the Machine, but like you can use it for different sounds that aren't Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, like a Les Paul family yeah. type of guitar. What, what What's your amp? What kind of amp do you have? This is for the nerds out there who, who dig that kind of thing. 
I just bought a crappy little small fender for practicing at home uh-huh. that has like distortion built right into it. But I do have a few pedals that I really like. Uh-huh. But in terms of daily practice, it's really just something like the size of my laptop. Yeah. It's very small. That's fine. Does it need to be big? I... Yeah, I have a bigger one in the practice space. Uh-huh. So you can be heard over the drums, but nothing fancy. I think gear is cool. I'm kind of a gear guy. I, I mean, I have a guitar, but I'm not, I'm not a player. I do not have an amp, but. Do you have gear opinions, even if you don't own any right now? I have opinions. I understand and appreciate the general difference between humbucking Gibson guitars and single coil Fender guitars. And Mm -hmm. uh, I have a Telecaster, which is one of the brighter ones, which the Gibson models would be at the opposite end of the the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I think one is superior to the other. I just think that they're different. And some of my favorite guys play Gibsons. Some of my favorite guys play Fenders and, and, and women as well. I have a telly. PJ Harvey is one of my favorites. And she, most of her early stuff is, she has a nice black telly. Frank Black from the Pixies plays a telly. But then Joey Santiago from the Pixies plays a Les Paul, I believe. And of course, all of them own multiple guitars and they play different guitars for different things. But, in, you know, there's kind of a signature model for each of these people. Like Keith Richards plays yeah. a Telecaster. Yeah, I I wish I was more of a gearhead, but then I'm also kind of fine for the moment because I feel like the more I learn about gear, the more I'm going to want to buy more gear and I don't really need more gear. Yeah. I guess my knowledge can expand as the band expands and sure. as my, I don't know, involvement expands. I had a Stratocaster growing up, but I like my Gibson a lot more. You like the th- the thicker sound. The sound is much thicker, right? Yeah, I just don't like things too tinny. I know that it helps the sound cut through. It really does. The overall band sound. Yeah. But I guess maybe the Telecaster is kind of in the middle. No, the Telecaster is definitely on the tin. It's very bright. It's, it, I, you know, it doesn't have to be. There are Telecasters that have non-standard pickups. So like there are humbucking, darker sounding uh, Telecasters as well. But the general, like the Telecaster standard model is is one of the brightest sounding <laughs> guitars. Guitars are wonderful. I love them. I wish I could play one better. You can get by on some pretty basic chords, pretty basic skills, and, and and actually come up with some like really cool sounds. It's not like we're in the classical orchestra or something. That is very true. Well, I hope you do end up playing out soon. And um, thanks for coming on. Um, Go ahead. No, just um, you mentioned Susie and the Banshees earlier. Um, did. My bassist is in a Susie and the Banshees cover band, and they're playing out on Sunday. So that's going to be my Halloween weekend thing that I do. That is super cool. <laughs> and and she famously does not identify as goth either. If you're an original, you don't really give a crap. About She's that Susie stuff. Sue for crying out loud. I heard an interview with Mike Watt from Minutemen, Firehose and Mike Watt on Mark Marin's podcast. And they were talking about what is punk rock. He was talking about a lot of people identify punk rock as safety pins and, and mohawks and all this stuff. And he's just like, no, it was just a whole DIY scene. And it was like a network of people touring and making their own scene is basically what it was. And that was bands like Susie and the Banshees would be included in that, but so would Bad Brains and so would the Minutemen and so would you know, whatever, all these other things. Even when I was a kid, I remember when I was going to my first my first All Ages shows, there would be like some kind of a rap metal band and then there would be some kind of band that sounded like R.E.M. and then there would be some kind of other, you know, hardcore punk band. It was more of an ethos than it had to do with a particular sound. If you asked most people, they're not going to say that R.E.M. sounds particularly punk. But if if you think about it in terms of being an ethos or building the scene and making your own thing because you're outside of the system, then yeah. We've had all these different generations of the same kind of idea because Mm -hmm. like alternative from the 90s meant the same thing. (laughs) Indie from the aughts meant the same thing. They're very different sounds, but like the whole idea is to be outside the mainstream and then it gets incorporated into the mainstream and then you got to do it again. That's how it goes. It, It is. You feel old now? I feel old every day. Thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, you're welcome, Jim. It's really nice to be able to chat and finally understand why you're in the Netherlands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad that I could shed some light. That was Melissa. I like how she calls her business her medium and that she views it as sort of a collaborative artwork. And although I don't always subscribe to it, I appreciate her practical approach to education and solving logistical issues. Thinking that maybe I should take a class or something, but I'm not sure what, what I should take. 
Probably Dutch. I, my Dutch could use a little work. For now, I'm just going to stick with my plan of punching whatever problems arise in the face with the hopes that they, they'll run away. Works most of the time. Anyway, sharpening my Dutch skills would likely increase my viability in the job market. Just for the record, I'm not punching anyone. The, the punching is purely metaphorical. I also liked her idea about telling others about your crazy plans to help you sort of feel accountable because you don't want to keep telling people that you didn't follow through with your plans. It's sort of like joining a fitness class or a sports team. You don't want to let the team down, and in the end, you end up being the winner. Thanks for being on the show, Melissa. I really appreciate it. Also, thanks to all the wonderful people who are listening. Your time is valuable, and I'm glad you spent your time with me. Hope you got something out of it. Melissa can be found at shoptrude.com. That's S-H-O-P-T-R-U-E-D.com. She's also on Instagram and Facebook at trude.apparel. T-R-U-E-D dot apparel. I didn't ask the name of her band, but I'll be sure to check that out when they get an online presence. Special thanks to boomkas.com for audio and post-production. That's B-O-O-M-K-A-A-S.com. If you need an audio wizard, go to boomcost.com and ask for Ed. Lastly, Feel Free to Deviate can be found at feelfreetodeviate.com or on Instagram and Facebook at feelfreetodeviate. Drop by, like some stuff, leave a comment. It gets lonely on there sometimes. I'm fairly certain that the next episode will feature Ben Licata. He rocks very hard and he's a tattoo artist, among other things. Check it out in two weeks. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.